0: In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Dr. Helen Chersky, a physicist and oceanographer. In December 2020, Helen presented one of the three Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, in which expert scientists from different fields presented a unique user's guide to planet Earth. You can watch that in full on BBC iPlayer. Helen's lecture, called Waterworld, looked at the oceans as an engine exploring how they played a critical role in generating weather, providing food and connecting trade routes throughout history. We spoke to Helen last month, shortly before she delivered the lecture, to find out more. Putting the questions to her was our Acting Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans.
2: Your Christmas lectures are going to look at the impact of human activity on our planet uh, and explore a lot of the links there. Uh, can I just ask, how do you go about tackling a, a subject as vast as, as the links between human civilization and the ocean? Uh, with difficulty. I'm also
3: writing a book on it, which is actually, in a way, it's better it's, it's because there's more space, but it's worse because there's even more you could include, and so you have to make even more decisions. In some senses, from my point of view for the ocean you know, it helps a little bit because no one knows anything about the ocean. So there is this, still this perception that it's kind of the blue bits between the interesting places. And so in a way, the first thing I have to do uh, is just tell people what the ocean is, because people don't know. There isn't there isn't this public perception that it's this engine, which is running Earth. And so... Um, in a way, my job's been made a bit easier because actually the first stage, which is the most important one in some sense, is just that perspective. So once you talk about that perspective, it's easier to stick other things on. I sometimes say uh, in contexts like this, that it's, there's, no point talk, there's no point giving someone a Christmas bauble if they don't know that trees exist. And, and with the ocean, it's very much a case of no one knows the tree is there. So if you give them one of these connections between the humans and the ocean, you know, they just sort of go, Oh, well, I don't really know what to do with this, right? Because I, I don't have, I don't have a framework to place it in. So my, so my job has been made, you know, I love talking about the ocean. I'm very happy to talk about the ocean engine, but it does mean that we, I can't actually get to some of the more interesting links directly. But the framework is really important. So it's the first stage, um, but there are more stages that are necessary.
2: So, when did um, we start thinking about the ocean as this engine that drives us? Like, that it is such an integral part of our world. So this
3: comes in stages, right? Because obviously there have been indigenous people of various uh, from various backgrounds, various places on the world who have lived ocean lives. And uh, perhaps some of the more obvious examples are obviously the Polynesians who had this massive navigation um, capability and very sophisticated way of seeing the ocean. And then you have... Uh, Alaskan, well you know all the arctic tribes you know all of the you know the, the, who went out on the sea ice and hunted and lived with the ocean um and then obviously in other places around the world as well so so the so the first thing is that the west you know western science came quite late to this in some senses um and uh, there was a lot of experiential knowledge about the ocean, which was often lost. Um, but it's important that we recognise it, and some of it still remains. So then, as far as Western science is concerned, th- there was there was, this, there was this ship. It's actually almost the hundred fiftieth anniversary. So next year, well, not quite next year. It's twenty twenty two. Will be the hundred fiftieth anniversary of the Challenger expeditions, and they so they set out from uh, it was a London based enterprise in eighteen seventy two, and. And that was the first. Exp- that's the birth of oceanography. Generally, is is that, um, you know, they they sailed around the globe. They took four years. They stopped in three hundred and sixty places, which isn't much. I mean, uh, the way I think about it is, it's like taking. It's like telling someone the Sistine Chapel exists, and then telling them the colour of like 360 little pixels somewhere on the ceiling, right? And what are they supposed to make of that? You know, so there's, there's it's very nice, there's some colours, but what does that mean? You know, you can't see the big picture. Um, but what's interesting actually, so that, so Challenger is really the start of oceanography um, and, and this is, you know, really important expedition. And there was a lot of fuss made about it at the time. You know, it was understood they were going to actually explore the ocean itself, not who was living on the other side of it, who you could steal things from or trade with. Um, but the interesting thing, I think, about the Challenger expeditions is that, again, you know, the scientists were kind of catching up with what the sailors already knew. So I recently read 20,000 um, uh, Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne's science fiction novel, which was published, I think, just before the Challenger expeditions. I think it was in the 1860s. And his description of the ocean, and it's a science fiction book written before we anyone had really studied the ocean, is so accurate in these amazing ways. And um, it's because sailors spent time at sea. They observed things and he talked to the sailors. So there's this kind of, it's its a bit of a mixture of answers to your question. Um, so, you know, because there was a lot of experiential knowledge and then Challenger came along. And then the next big um, jump forward was actually after the Second World War. So obviously, you know, submarines were sort of there a little bit in World War One; They played a massive role in World War II. And and suddenly you've got all this, you know, understanding of acoustics and understanding that weather might influence where your ships can go and, you know, the swell forecasts for D-Day. So actually, the, the so swell is the the sort of long-lived waves on the ocean, you know, the ones that travel for miles and miles is kind that of, look like waves that don't break. Um, and the first swell forecasts were done for the D-Day landings and they actually delayed the landings by 24 hours because um, it was obvious that they were just going to be, you know, if they'd gone without those those, um, forecasts, if they'd gone on the original day, the whole thing would have been a disaster. So, so, so after, you know, so there was appreciation, military appreciation after the second world war that there was something here to be studied. And then there was a kind of, you know, real push in the fifties and sixties to understand the ocean. And that happened sort of in parallel with the space race a little bit. And then everyone got all excited about the moon and forgot about the ocean. And we're sort of coming back to it now. So, Ocean scientists have sort of studied it the whole time, but there's been these real waves in uh, interest, I guess, not just knowledge.
2: Mm. So, so that all sounds, um, with, with the exception of what you talked about at the very beginning of the answer. How, how much is known about what people thought of the ocean before this discipline almost kicked off with that with that Challenger expedition? It's-
3: It's very varied. So, and again, it's a very Western... So the the Western world has a very combative relationship with the ocean. You know, if you look at um, uh, ocean, you know, sort of landscape paintings from earlier than that, there were a few. And if you look at, you know, even if you look at, you know, the... um, uh you know paintings in Elizabeth the 1st time you know the, the Armada and all of those things the ocean is this kind of there are big waves and it's complicated and these little ships are kind of floating on top and the ocean is this barrier it's it's angry it's out to get you um it's dangerous you know if you go and you come back then you're very lucky and and so so people did understand the ocean and it was actually uncommon for people to be able to swim even sailors uh, there were superstitions around being able to swim, and so, so it was uncommon for people. It was just a nasty thing, basically, <laughs> that you didn't go near unless you had to, and if you got to the other side of it, then you were a great hero because you, you know, you'd beaten this thing. So. Yeah, so, so Westerners were quite late, but again, other nations didn't have that combative relationship. They saw, you know, they had a more holistic view. They saw the ocean as part of their world. If you speak to the Polynesians, for example, they will say the ocean is what connects them. That actually, um, you know, so, but the nature of geology is that islands tend to come in little lines because of especially if they're formed by volcanism right like like the island chain of Hawaii and um, it's quite common in, in Polynesia which is basically all of the middle of the Pacific for people to know so say you've got a little chain of islands so you live on a shore you're facing another island and then you've got across the ocean you've got an, the rest of your island behind you they were more likely to know the people across the ocean than the ones around the back of their own island because the ocean was what connected them. So, so it's all about perspective. So, I think you know this this combative relationship hasn't really done us any favors. And actually, there's just one more example on that. That um, the on Iceland, if anyone's ever been to uh, Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, um, there are these amazing maps all along the harbour. It's great big maps, great posters. And everyone shows a picture of Iceland and everyone shows the shipwrecks from a 10-year period. And they tell what type of ship, how many men died, you know, all of this. And they go back and there's one every 10 years and there's 20 of them. And um, 200 years worth of record. And there's a very clear message there. You get to the harbour and they are saying the ocean will kill you. You know, you go there to get fish. Iceland has a very rich fishing grounds, but you—you know—when you go to sea, you're gonna, you know—you risk—you risk death every time. And I spent a while. I have spent a while asking Icelanders, um, you know, do you go to sea for fun? What do? You, and they just look at you like they don't. They genuinely don't understand the question. You go to sea to get fish. And if you're not getting fish, you don't go to sea. And it's just like the the concept of leisure at sea just isn't there. So so what I'm saying is that the ocean has been seen as a very violent, nasty place because it's not very welcoming to humans, but the humans that learn to work with it. Saw it as part of their world, so it's it's, it's really, it's really, is a really interesting mixed bag. Basically, these are not simple answers. Mm, Sorry, no, that's fine. It's well,
2: it's a vast history we're talking about, obviously. Um, But but I'm interested in what you said about um, the shift from, uh, certainly in the West, the the shift from this um, this history of combat and seeing it as an enemy to um, uh, you know wanting to find out more about it and the the Challenger um, expedition. What was the impetus for that? And I mean, we're kind of talking about Industrial Revolution around that time, or post-industrial revolution, was it seen as an asset to be explored, or was it just wanting to know more about it?
3: I think that probably depends on who you asked, (laughs) because as ever, the people funding it were not necessarily that, you know, there's always the scientists always want to go just to poke about with the science. Other people want knowledge because it means power and other people want knowledge because it means they can trade. Right. So so I think even at the time it was varied. There's no doubt that, you know, in the Victorian era, there was this the British saw themselves. They had this, you know, they had ships, they had steam ships now. And although Challenger did have an engine, it mostly used sail. So it could get itself out of trouble with a very early engine, but it, it mostly used sail. Yeah, so there was, I think I'm not an expert on the history of science, but I think that partly it's the Victorian. You know, they did have something which is, we are going to explore the world, we're going to write it all down, we're going to categorise it. That's what the Victorians really like. They like categorising things. Classify this, very Linnaean, right? You bring it home, you you sort of, you freeze it, you put it in a bottle, you stuff it, or whatever you're going to do with this animal. You put it in a box, you put a label on it, and then you know, right? That was very much the, the Victorian attitude to science. And so I think part of it was just that it was a great big thing, you know, that was unknown. And it, it was time to start categorising it, right? You couldn't, couldn't have all this unknown out there. And there was a lot of um, naval pride in Britain, you know. However, we are an island and, and we do have um, a military, you know, a naval history. That, so, so I think it's a combination of things. But I've no doubt that at least there was, it, it was set up as a, um, you know, a voyage of exploration. But there's no doubt that there's a lot of convenient things that come with
0: that sort of knowledge Still to come on the History Extra podcast
3: point is it's all mixed in together that the ocean science and what we would think of as history and human culture and human politics that the ocean is right in there with all these big influences it's just that we don't normally see no one asks the question why was it their bird poo we all fought over rather than anyone else's bird poo and the reason is because of the ocean
1: Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: But these days, there's very much an idea of we talk about our, our own impact on, on the ocean, we're thinking about it as very much a reciprocal kind of relationship. Um, at this time, w- was there any kind of thought about our own impact on it? Or, or did that come much later? When did that first come, come about?
3: I don't think so. And I think even even with whaling, you know, because whaling was this massive industry that, that just, and the cod, the cod fisheries as well, you know, in the late 1800s, this was when they were seeing the numbers go down, you know, cod fisheries grew and grew and grew. And there were these enormous numbers of fish. And then suddenly the fish weren't there anymore. And it was the same with whales, you know, whales. So quite a lot of Victorian machinery, for example, ran on uh, sperm oil. Lubricant, because it was really useful for that. And candles, like the standard candle, which is actually a measure, an official scientific measure of, of light, is made of uh, whale oil. So so whales were, were you know, they, they could use them for all these things and then suddenly they disappeared. And so in a way, I think they understood that we could affect animals in the ocean before, and people obviously, people resisted that idea, you know, some things don't change. Um, but they they appreciated that before anyone realised that we could change the ocean itself, and really even in the 1960s. So there was um, uh, a, a very famous ocean scientist called Roger Revelle who worked at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who in 1957 I think. Um, so he was he was talking about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and obviously you know Tyndall had done these experiments in the 1800s. Um, and uh, so people knew about the impact of carbon dioxide. And Roger Revelle was looking at this and saying, oh, well, then there's this line where he writes in 1957 um, that humanity is engaged in a great experiment, you know, a great global experiment. But he was talking about the atmosphere. And and it didn't occur to anybody, even then, that um, humanity could change the ocean itself. And, and that took a lot longer, I think, to percolate in. And really... Um, it was just it was so unbelievable. I mean, the atmosphere is big, but it's also kind of thin. You know, you put you you, put, you see a smoke stack. It's obviously putting something into the atmosphere. You sort of you, you can appreciate that humans are doing something to the atmosphere. But the ocean was just this blank space, right? You just put things in it and took things out. And no one ever asked what was on the other side of that line, really. So. So I, I don't I think it was relatively late. I mean we're probably talking seventies and eighties where humans really started to understand. And if you speak to marine biologists, you know now who are perhaps at or past retirement, they will almost always say their biggest regret was not making a fuss about it then, because they saw what it was like, you know, before a lot of these baselines shifted, and they didn't really do anything because they didn't they couldn't quite believe that it would happen on that scale. And now, of course, we can see that that was just the thin end of the wedge. So it has taken a long time. And I think it's still not accepted. I think people still, you know, people talk about climate change, but they don't talk about ocean acidification. And ocean acidification is like that's, that's you know, the other twin, right? There's two There's two bad things the carbon dioxide does. It, it slows down heat transfer into space, which means it warms the planet up. And it makes the surface ocean more less alkaline, which makes it harder for things to grow. And no one talks about that one, right? Arguably, slightly less important, but in the big picture, really important. So my point is that people still don't really appreciate that the ocean, what the ocean is and what it does for us. And so we're still on that path. Hmm.
2: And so you have these, the Christmas lectures, um, they're going to be available on BBC Four, um, presented with Chris Jackson and Tara Shine. So what can you tell us about, um, certainly your portion of, of the lecture's? so
3: the lectures are a user's guide to planet earth we did have a debate about the word users because none of the three of us see ourselves as users of a planet that's that's a very um that's a sort of consumer society attitude to it you know that you use it up and then you know if you if you believe jeff bezos and elon musk thing just go to another one and use that up right that's not how it works um whatever they would like to think we've got a very, very special planet here. We've got a spectacularly rich island in space. There is nothing in the solar system that can come anywhere near to this, however much geoengineering you do to it. So it's about this planet, not about other planets. Um, so, yeah, so so the three lectures, um, Chris is a geologist, and so he will be talking about the the how the rocks have changed through Earth's history and um, how... There are different ways, you know, we've got this planet, but there's different ways it can work. It's a bit like you've got a machine, but it'll do different things depending on which levers you pull. So so he's talking about the Earth, the sort of the rocks and the plate tectonics and how that has influenced Earth's climate over history. You know, by history, I don't mean human history. I mean the history of the Earth. Um, and just take talk talking about how the machine works from a geological point of view. I'm doing the second one on the ocean. So I'm talking about how the ocean engine works. And Tara is, um, she's, hers is interesting because she's not just talking about the atmosphere, although that is the major focus. She's talking about human impacts on the atmosphere. And so how different things we do that might be counterintuitive um, change The atmosphere and what we can do about it so so it's this kind of there's some it's like you have to understand the framework before you can get to what the solutions are so it kind of works its way through both forward in time and forward in sort of building what this machine what is this thing we're living on, right? It is one of our life support systems. I think each of us have three life support systems. We've got our own body, we've got planet Earth, we've got the infrastructure of our civilization. So this this sphere that we're living on is a life support system. We'd better find out how it works. I mean that would be you'd be like, where's the instruction book, right? That's the first question you'd ask. So so what we're I guess we're trying to convey to these um, the young audience who who often watch these lectures is basically this is this is the instruction book, right? You, you've got to work out what you're going to
2: do with all this information. But here, are the, here's how it works. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like a like a fascinating series. And, and I, I, I imagine there'll be plenty of that in your, your book as well. Did you want to say something about the book you're working on? Oh, well, the book is
3: one of those frustrating things that I had started on and then COVID came along. And then because I'm an academic, I've spent all of the past nine months, because it almost is nine months now, um, worrying about how you teach students online and not writing my book. So so ask me again
2: about the book in a year when I've actually finished it. (laughs) Sure. Well, it sounds like a great plan to me. So your your work looks um, at how the ocean has affected human history in the past. Could you perhaps give us an example of, of one occasion like that? So there's one, there's
3: one that's very famous. One of the interesting things about this is that the links are always there, but they don't get made because the historians don't know oceanography and the oceanographers don't know history. But one of the most famous features in the ocean, I guess, that has been a major feature in history is um, along the western side of South America that the Humboldt Current runs up, and it's this cold current of water that comes up from Antarctica. And... Um, it runs up the coast. It's an extremely rich fishing area. And it is also the area where guano was harvested. So, you know, back in the 1800s, sources of ammonia were really rare, nitrogen, basically. And you can use nitrogen for two things, fertilisers and explosives. A few other things, but it's mostly those two. And so guano, for a while, was this fantastically valuable commodity. And it popped... I mean, you'd think, well, you know, birds poo everywhere. What is what is the big deal here? And it turns out that the guano off that the western coast of South America is ex, was extremely high. There were islands that were basically hundreds and hundreds of metres of stacked up bird poo, and this was white gold. That's how it was referred to at the time, incredibly valuable. So why is it there and not anywhere else? And um, it turns out that, uh, so there's a feature in the ocean there that makes it happen. Um, as the ocean kind of has this warm lid that the traps nutrients in the deep ocean there's this lid on top that keeps them down there but if those nutrients can get to the surface in the sunlight then you've got you've got basically got a city right you've got loads of life because you've got nutrients and sunlight so there's a there's um, a feature of the ocean the way the ocean engine spins that pulls away the lid where South America is, and it releases this cold water to come up from underneath. And so you've got nutrients, you've got sunlight, you've got everything. It's a huge amount of life in that area. You get fish, you know, it's a huge huge fishing industry for this fish that no one really wants to eat, actually, but it's very useful for its oil. And then the birds sitting on their little islands nearby, they eat the fish, and then they come back and poo on their island. But, this is the clever bit, that cold ocean water stops it raining, in that area, so the bird poo doesn't get washed away. So the cold water is doing two things: it's it's first of all providing the fuel underneath that that, pr- that keeps the fish and the birds going, but it's also it prevents the bird poo washing away, and that is why so, I mean, there were wars fought over this guano, right? Birds poo all over the world, and so it, so it, so, it, so it, that's just one example of how the engine, the ocean engine, was turning underneath, and. It just so happens that the engine turned in a way that produced this very valuable resource, which totally didn't have to be there. But this this combination of stopping the rain and having lots of life gives you this resource which humanity is prepared to fight over uh, a lot, actually. And until the Harbour, Harbour-Bosch process came along just before World War One, that, that was it, right? That was all humanity had. And then it was overtaken by science. Uh, and what was that process? The Haber-Bosch process, so it's, a way of artif- it's basically a way of making artificial ammonia. So instead of having to go out and find nitrogen that's fixed in um, something like bird poo, um, you can just take nitrogen from the air, put it under a lot of pressure and heat, and you can turn it into ammonium with the right catalyst. So basically, you don't have to rely on nature. You can do this in a factory. And as soon as you have a factory and that is where a lot of i mean then you can make all the explosives and fertilizer you want and so that was a massive turning point it was germany was the the place where that development you know really took off and then of course everybody wanted fertilizer ammonium because you can make fer- fertilizer and explosives so so it's all these kind of overlapping you know processes but it's all the point is it's all mixed in together that the ocean science and what we would think of as history and human culture and human politics that the, the ocean is right in there with all these big influences it's just that we don't normally see no one asks the question why was it their bird poo we all fought over rather than anyone else's bird poo and the reason is because of the ocean so I think everyone should think all about, about all of this stuff more right the ocean is always the hidden partner just because it's underneath the surface doesn't mean it doesn't matter and I think you know that that idea of asking why is it like this and not like something else
0: that the ocean has a lot to contribute to those questions that was Helen Chersky to watch the lecture series in full head to BBC iPlayer and search for Royal Institution Christmas Lectures thanks for listening this podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman tomorrow I'll be speaking to Paul Betts about the challenges of rebuilding Europe after World War II